quoting the words that Solomon had said before. The Lord was listening. And God is saying, when it comes to the point of me doing that, well, here is the cure. Verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And the Lord says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Verse 14 contains an if clause, if my people. And if you've got your Bible, we probably won't show this on the screen, but if you have a look at verse 17, it's if you walk before me and verse 19, but if you turn away. There are three if statements and the consequences work through it. So in the context of this chapter, this is just simply the very first if phrase or the if conditional clause. If this happens, then this is what will be the response. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for the privilege of being together, for the blessing of your word, because it gives us an understanding, uh, an insight into things that we would know in no other way, uh, that you are real and that you are at work in the world. Lord, through this passage, open our eyes again, remind us how you work out your purposes in the world and how you uh, invite us to cooperate with you in that process. I ask, Lord, that you'd be pleased to speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would come and dwell amongst us in a strong sense of the presence of the Lord Jesus. We ask, Lord, to be caught up into your presence, and to hear your voice and your challenge to each of us and to us as a church. We ask this in Jesus' name, who is our King and who is head of the church. And everybody said... If you look at our nation just quickly, I know it's a bit of a jump. This is written for the nation of Israel and it's conditioned upon them, but it does have application to us. Now, as a nation, yes, but also particularly individually and as a church. But if you look at our nation, then we, like it says in chapter 6 and in the beginning of chapter 7, it talks about broken promises. We're a nation of broken promises. Our divorce rate is going up. We have politicians who promise this and deliver the opposite. Broken promises. Uh, we're a nation <clears throat> that are experiencing strange weather patterns. We're a nation that has been uh, having, experiencing rising crime rates. Is it just me or is there more of it? Are we just more aware of it or is it actually on the increase? I sense it's on the increase. There's unrest on our campuses. Uh, the moral level in our society is approaching toxic levels. We're polluting our natural resources. There's widespread overuse of alcohol and drugs. And God's been trying to get our attention through hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and fires and all sorts of ways, floods and droughts. These are God's knocking on the door, trying to get our attention. In our society, in public education, we have departed from the foundation principles of our nation, I guess. It's now inappropriate to pray in public schools, but it's okay to blaspheme God's name. We've departed from a strong sense and understanding that God is our creator, and we've abandoned that towards naturalistic evolution. People are placing uh, confidence in our governments and in our armies and in our economy. 
when none of these things really sustain a nation. That's the Lord, Psalm 20, verse 7. We as a nation, like the people of Israel of old, are certainly guilty of the sin of neglecting God, neglecting to worship him, neglecting to call upon him, neglecting to serve him. We've replaced God with all other sorts of things, of um, materialism or pleasures or career or whatever. We know that people in our nation, the vast majority, have turned their backs on God, walked away from him, and believe that they know better than him and that God has no place in their lives. What can we do? Well, this verse gives us some sort of direction. That when these sorts of things happen, when the heavens are shut up, when there is no rain, when there are plagues are decimated by disease or locusts, when there is a plague and diseases amongst people, when these unusual things are happening, it's God trying to get our attention. And it's interesting it's not just the nation, but it's conditional. If my people, who are called by my name, if my people. Now, we're all created by God physically. He is our creator. But we don't all belong to God. Not all of us are God's people. Because not everyone has God as their father, spiritually. In fact, many people whom God has created hate him, reject him, and ignore him. Just like Romans chapter 1 says. It's only those. And as I look around, it's most of us this morning. I can't say all of us, because there could very well be some present who are not yet at that point in their life. But for the vast majority of us, we acknowledge his kinship. We acknowledge that Jesus is our Redeemer and Lord, and we accept the indwelling Holy Spirit. That the above us God is the with us God is the in us God. And that because of that, we have a relationship with him, just like a father with a child, that we are his people. If we are God's people, then there'll be a vast difference between us and other people. Or there ought to be. God's people trust him and do not rely on themselves. God's people seek him and his glory not their own. God's people serve him. God's people walk the narrow path, not the broad road that leads to destruction. God's people are headed in a different direction and have a different destination. Now, even by just reading those differences, you reflect in your own personal life, but we can see that God's people trust him and they don't rely on themselves. Well, sometimes we do, don't we? We're not always like that. We have a tendency to stumble, to drift, to get distracted and to wander away. But nonetheless, the overarching emphasis is that we as his people, as his children, do trust him. And though there are times when we rely on ourselves, he invariably brings us to a point where we come to the realisation that this is foolishness, this is silly, and that we get back on track. We repent, we confess, we apologise and we ask God's forgiveness and off we go again. It's this series of stops and starts, of detours and returning to the path, the journey. And that's what it is. It's a journey. This passage is saying, if we are God's people, if that describes you, then this message is primarily for you. If you have not yet come to the point of acknowledging Jesus Christ to be Lord and Saviour, if you haven't surrendered your life like we just sang in that lovely song about, here is my life and I lay it all down. 
and I give it all to you, Lord. If you've never done that, then that's the most important decision that you are yet to make in your life. And we would invite you to do that today. To turn from your wicked ways, turn from ignoring God, neglecting God, and rather reach out your hands to him and you'll find that he's reaching out to you to embrace you. But most of us have made that decision. We are called by his name. We are his people and we are called by his name, Christians. I always feel uncomfortable in calling myself a Christian. Well, up until this week. And it's this verse, this truth that sort of, hmm. The reason I feel uncomfortable in calling myself a Christian is because you can be so easily misunderstood. You ask Joe Blow in society, are you a Christian? The vast majority of Australians will say, yes, I am. You ask my dad if he's a Christian, he'll say, yes, he is. What does he mean? What do the vast majority of people in Australia who call themselves Christians but are not born again, do not know God as their Heavenly Father, haven't got Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them? What do they mean? Well, they mean, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Muslim, I'm not Baha'i, I'm not Hindu. What else is there? I'm Christian. If you've got to be something, that's what I am. And that's how they use the word. And that some people still erroneously say that this is a Christian nation. So the word Christian is being used very broadly and I think being misused. And that's why I always get uncomfortable in using it. The New Testament doesn't use it that often, it uses it about two or three times. And in fact the word Christian was first used as a mocking term, as to insult the believers who were in Antioch. A Christian means a little Christ, a Christ in one. Uh, you're a follower of Christ, you're a Christian, a Christian. Um, and just this week I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, we ought not to abandon this term and give it up to the world to let them use it erroneously. We ought to embrace this title, this word, Christian, but be prepared to explain exactly what it means. That a Christian is not just someone who lives in a Christian nation like Australia, inverted commas, but a Christian is a person who knows and follows Jesus Christ personally, a Christ in one. If we are God's people and if we are called by his name, then we must live accordingly. The story is told of Alexander the Great. They had heard another corporal, another soldier in his army, who had his name. His name was also Alexander, and probably several of them. But this particular Alexander had a problem that he was not only scared and nervous, but he was also cowardly. That he wasn't living up to his namesake of the great general. So Alexander, the emperor, summoned him to come and appear before him. And when he came, he just looked at him and he said... Either live up to your name or change it. <laughs> Alexander. Well, if we are Christians, if we are his people and called by his name, we've called on his name to save us. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We've been baptised in his name and we are now called by his name. Christians. Then let us live up to it. Watch how we live and act. Watch what we say and how we say it. How are you doing so far? See, it can be challenging, can't it? 
Not just going through the routines, but is that how we are living authentically before God? Or have we been lulled into the very false premise? Because God is so gracious and so good, that we almost take that as a license to sin. And that we've dropped the ball when it comes to our own personal levels of dedication and of service and of self-denial. Yeah, we follow the Lord. We're still pretty outwardly more Christian than not Christian, but we're not 100% committed. We're 90, 80%, whatever the percentage is for you. Well, if we are God's people and if we are called by his name, then this is what we must do personally, but also as a church. We must humble ourselves and pray. We must seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. You don't need me to go through too much of this. To humble ourselves and to pray are in fact linked. To humble ourselves is the opposite of pride. It's to place ourselves under another. To bend the knee, to submit, to surrender, to humble ourselves. It's not to grovel in the dirt. It's not to deny our abilities and strengths and things that we are good at. It's simply to take those and to acknowledge that they by themselves are not enough. To be humble means to be honest, very honest before God. To humble ourselves, to lay it all on the line for him. And to pray, to approach him. Ask him to reveal to us our need, reveal to us our sin. Ask him to forgive us and to cleanse us. To acknowledge we can't, Lord, but you can. These two go together. To humble and to pray means that we are to be dependent on God, which the Bible is full of. God didn't make us to live life without him. He, in fact, made life for us. He made us to do life with him in a relationship, day by day, to walk with him, to depend on him, not to rely on our own strength or insight or understanding. Humble ourselves and pray. Depend on him. Second thing to seek his face, to be devoted to him, to seek his smile, his approval. It's that great verse the Apostle Paul has of 2 Corinthians 5, 9. I make it my ambition to please him. That's his ambition, to please him. In all that we do, in every aspect of our life, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships, in our neighbours' relationships, our work colleagues, church context, to seek his approval. The one thing that hides God's face is sin, our compromising and dishonouring his name. But to seek his face is to have to seek his countenance and his smile, his approval, just like the Lord Jesus experienced and modelled for us at his baptism. The heavens open and the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he'd been a tradesman for the first 30 odd years of his life. That's what God looks for in us, to please him in every situation, seek his face. Thirdly, not only to be dependent upon him, humble and pray, to be devoted to him, to seek his face, but to be different to the world, to turn from our wicked ways to watch what we watch on TV, to be very careful about what we listen to, to what we read, to what we expose ourselves to. Not to remove ourselves from the world, but rather to protect ourselves in the world. Turn from our wicked ways of forgetting God or of neglecting God. 
What happens when we do that? When we humble ourselves and pray, when we seek his face, his approval, and turn from our wicked ways, say no to sin, then, God says, if you do that, then he will hear from heaven, which is a wonderful promise. It's an amazing truth, isn't it? The God of heaven listens and he hears us. It's incredible. God will hear from heaven. He'll forgive because we have turned from our wicked ways. We've come back to him and asked him for forgiveness. We're seeking his face and his approval. And he's promising, I will accept you. I will forgive. And then on top of that, he says, and then I will heal your land. If my people, are you part of his people? Called by his name, are you called by his name? Humble yourself, pray, seek his face, turn from your wicked ways. Then God will act to cleanse, to heal. So for us, not just individually, but that's where it must begin. As a church, we need to embrace these same principles, to humble ourselves, to seek his face, to pray, to turn from our wicked ways or our own organised ways that get in the road of listening to him. God's will for us as a church is to become stronger and better, for his church to become a house of prayer. Not just a church that prays, but a house of prayer. We'll talk about that more in weeks to come. These corporate prayer meetings, there are different levels of prayer. I wasn't sure if I was going to tell you this or not. There are different levels of uh, ways of orchestrating prayer. And it all goes down ultimately to the personal, you as an individual, praying. But if you start at the largest, there is international prayer days. Then there are countrywide prayer days, national days of prayer. There are citywide prayer days. There's the three top levels, the three hugest, biggest levels. And then it comes down to more of our experience and our life where it's combined churches praying interdenominationally. And we've done that and we'll continue to do that. Then there is corporate prayer or church prayer with a whole church. And for us, that's five congregations coming together to pray. And then there is another level where it's just simply congregational prayer. And some of that's already started and will develop this year. There is cell group prayer, life groups or ministry groups. There are clusters of prayer at another level where it's like prayer triplets or accountability groups or D teams or quad groups where people pray and there's two, three or four. All this is built on this foundation. There is family prayer, there is couples praying and then there is closet prayer, individuals. So the challenge for us, has, the question has to be asked about your own personal prayer life. Because on the basis of that, then it grows into the other. And it would appear from the scriptures that the Lord, the sovereign Lord, has ordained that unless his people pray, then he won't act. That you have not because you ask not. Not just at the individual level, the family level, but we're talking about church level. These idea of corporate prayer days, of coming together and having prayer meetings and churches praying is established in the Old Testament with all the solemn assemblies of Israel. It's continued in the New Testament with the early church being a church that gathered together to pray. 
We'll talk more about that. It's demonstrated in history and it certainly is expected today. One of Satan's strategies is to overcrowd church programs and calendars and to put prayer, squeezing it out. We can be guilty of that. We're a busy church. We run lots of programs and our property is being greatly used. And all of those are good things. But we need to be careful that we don't fall into this satanic strategy of becoming so busy that we lose our focus and therefore we lose our spiritual power. Dan Crawford says, Prayer is a divinely ordained, biblically based, humanly needed, historically proven necessity for the growth of a healthy church. Divinely ordained, biblically based, humanly needed, historically proven necessity for the growth of a healthy church. Just as an iceberg is one-ninth above the surface and eight-ninths below the surface, so our prayer life is to be like that. The vast majority of our prayer is in private, in the closet, or it's with our families or our, our spouses as couples or in the prayer triplets or the small groups. That's the vast majority of our prayer. But there is one-ninth above, which is the public, visible to the world prayer. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, Prayer pulls the rope down below and a great bell rings in heaven above. Some people can barely stir the bell. Other people just occasionally give a jerk on the rope. What we need is to grab a hold of the rope boldly and pull continuously with all our might, privately in prayer, in families, in groups and in congregations and as a church. Jack Taylor wrote an article in which he talks about the laws of prayer. Just as we have our young people learning to drive and there are rules to learn and there is practice to be done, so too with prayer. There are rules of prayer. These are his observations. He has six of them. Number one, no believer's spiritual life will rise above the level of his or her praying. No believer's spiritual life will rise above the level of his or her praying. Law number two, no church's ultimate effectiveness will rise above the level of its corporate praying, church prayer meetings. No church's corporate prayer life, number three, will rise above the level of the prayer lives of its individual members. It's all interlinked. Law number four, no believer's prayer life will rise above the quality of his own quiet time with the Lord, time alone with God on a regular basis, how important it is. Number five, no believer's practice of prayer will be greater than his view of prayer. And number six, the best way to learn to pray is to pray. You can learn about prayer by attending seminars or reading books or listening to sermons or whatever, filling in notebooks. But at the end of the day, it's what you do. And the best way to learn to pray is to pray. The best way to learn to drive is to drive. Leonard Ravenhill, who is a very challenging author, says this. The church has many organisers, but few agonisers. Many who pay, but fewer who pray. Many resters, but few wrestlers. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. The secret of praying... He's praying in secret, he says. A worldly Christian will stop praying. A praying Christian will stop worldliness. 
in the matter of effective prayer, never have so many left so much to so few. Brethren, he says, let us pray. Well, it's a message that you've heard before and many times and you know the reality and the truth of it. It's just something that we need to work, make sure it works into our lives personally. Getting that right. Families, getting that right. In our life groups, in our ministry groups. But then at the next level is us coming together to pray. In the future we'll release dates and times and opportunities where we'll be able to do that. Not just in our public services, but we as a church coming together, sometimes for a whole week, sometimes for a whole day, and sometimes for nights of prayer. This passage challenges us to be dependent on God, on God to humble ourselves and pray, to be devoted to God, seek his face, and to be different to the world, to turn from our wicked ways. As we do that, our bit, then we can ex God, expect God to hear us, to help us, and to heal us. Let's pray. Sovereign Father, the one who gives all good things, thank you that the doors of heaven are open and that we can come with ready access because of Jesus. We understand, Lord, from your word that you in your sovereignty have decided to link what you do with what we do. That you look for us as your people, to those who are called by your name, to be humble, admitting our need, to seek your face in prayer, to seek your pleasure, your smile in the choices we make and to turn from sinful choices. You look for that and when you see it, there you command the blessing that you hear, that you forgive, and that you heal. We desire, Lord Jesus, to be a church which will bring great honour to you. So therefore, Lord, I ask that you might teach us to pray. I ask this in your name. Amen.